I'm sure you will agree, it's a topsy-turvy world in which we live. Topsy-turvy world in which English cricketers are better at dancing than they are at cricket. You spotted <laughs> that? Topsy-turvy world in which Sheffield Wednesday can dra- drag a point at the last minute by their goalkeeper going in and heading a goal. Only at Hillsborough does that sort of thing ever happen. It's a topsy-turvy world that there's actually a crime with my name on it. That's not surprising. But it's a computer crime. Anybody who would expect me to commit a computer crime must not know me. And the crime of hacking, I think you are aware of. It exists. It wasn't named after me. But some of you will remember that when I was invited back by Paul's predecessor, my immediate successor to preach, he played a trick on me. As you know, the preacher comes up to the pulpit from behind and he got a headline from a newspaper which the treacherous office staff, uh, forgetting their old boss, had made into a, 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 a headline and it was up there. I remember it vividly. I came up here and you all looked at the headline which said, Hacking poses greater threat than terrorism, which I think, (laughs) may he and you all be forgiven. Well, can I suggest to you, I don't think I pose any greater threat than terrorism, but may I suggest to you as we turn back to uh, page whatever it was, page uh, 716 and Isaiah 32 and the theme of a king and a man, I wonder if you remember who actually called Jesus in one chapter those two things. Very strange, it was Pontius Pilate. In John chapter 19, he referred to Jesus as, Behold your king. And he called him, Behold the man. Those were the words of Pontius Pilate. And you see, Pontius Pilate strangely came to the conclusion that Jesus posed a greater threat than terrorism. Well, he must have done For he allowed a terrorist, Barabbas, to go free. Okay, Barabbas was a terrorist in what you might have thought a good cause, but a terrorist nonetheless. And uh, Pilate, because he thought of his own position, and he had heard the crowd saying, if you let release this man, that is Jesus, you're not Caesar's friend. And Pilate saw the writing on the wall. Oh, he knew Jesus was innocent. He knew he shouldn't have died. He knew exactly what prompted the religious people to bring him to him. He knew it all. But at the end of the day, you play safe. And for many people, Jesus still poses a greater threat than terrorism. But for those of us who come to this Christmas Eve and ready for Christmas Day, and we're doing this little series, these great truths of a king and a man are wonderful truths indeed. Behold a king. You see, Pilate, strange enough, at the end of the day, wanted to make his own imprint. And so when the crowd said, you shouldn't put Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, say, he said he was king of the Jews. What I have written, I have written, said Pilate, in the last show of defiance. But you see, he wrote the truth. Now we look at a series from, from Isaiah, and I try to point out to you that Isaiah, when he looked to the future, 700 years before Jesus, He, in a sense, only saw one coming. He saw Messiah coming. He, in all his teaching, he saw the cross, a lot about the cross in Isaiah. He talked a great deal about cleansing and forgiveness, which could only come through his death. He talked about him coming. We saw our series, Emmanuel, God with us, a virgin conceiving, the light shining in darkness, all these truths we've seen. But they can only be finally, finally seen 
when he comes again. Advent is not just preparing for his first coming, it's preparing for his second coming. You said the collect, that we might so welcome a redeemer that we shall on that day face him with sure confidence. Now I'm not here just advertising, but next Sunday night I've got a postscript to this series. And I'm preaching from the end of the book of the Revelation. Why not give yourself a treat and come out on a Sunday evening and see just how it actually leads on this great truth to the moment when I dare to say, come, Lord Jesus. Do I want him to be king and man? You see, when Isaiah, in this chapter 32, in particular those first two verses, when he wants to bring, as it were, a a challenge to a political world. He just spent chapters talking about nations that would rise and fall, talking about the folly of politics in the Middle East. Nothing changes in our world. Nothing at all. And he wants to direct them to a real king and a real man who could change things. He'd been very disappointed in the kings around him and he was very disappointed in King Ahaz with whom he had battles And so he longed for a day when there would be the real king who would reign. Do you see it there in verse 1? In righteousness and ruling with justice. And then the picture in verses 3 onwards of a world where true godly people triumph and evil is defeated. A world we long for and King Jesus offers it. The Bible insists the day will come when the kings of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. And he will be king of kings and lord of lords there in the book of the Revelation. But he not only looks forward to a king when the kings had let him down, he actually looks forward to a man who will be the kind of man he longed for. Isaiah loved his Jerusalem. He lived in Jerusalem, he loved it. And if you read Isaiah 2, there's a picture of Jerusalem as it's meant to be, shining its light to the whole world, a wonderful picture. And then suddenly in Isaiah 2 and verse 6, you get the real Jerusalem. They're full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines. They clasp hands with pagans. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. That's the kind of world it was. So he saw Jerusalem as being a city that sent the gospel out. But instead it was a city which absorbed all kinds of evil Practice, And he longed for a man who would actually be the kind of man God meant men and women to be. Oh, I see a tremendous challenge. I believe we are all kinds of crossroads in our society. It's a topsy-turvy nation in which we live. And I hope we appreciate that what we need is a king and a man. Now, please note the text again carefully. It does not say, see, the king will reign. It doesn't say the man will be. It says a king. Each man. And the challenge of today, and it's a challenge to me on this Christmas Eve, is if I'm going to bow the knee to King Jesus, then he wants me to be the kind of person who in the world of today does the kind of things that Jesus did with all the imperfections of my frailty and humanity. So two simple thoughts this morning. A king who will reign and a man who will rescue. A king who will reign. It's a picture of true kingship. You see, you can follow the series through. We've seen it in Isaiah 7. There's the promise of a virgin and a child and we see the fulfilment. In chapter 9, 
there's the promise of light shining in darkness. And we've had a carol service, we've had our candlelight carol service, and we've rejoiced in that. And then we hadn't time in the series. In chapter 11, there's a picture of the king reigning, and the Spirit of God upon him, and society being gloriously transformed. And now this reminder of the true king, a king who will reign. There never has been one quite like this. Even David, who was the great hero, and they looked to the son of David, failed miserably sometimes, and always inadequately. But one day, the true king will reign. We read it in our second lesson, every knee will bow. One day his kingship will be seen. And at Christmas, as we celebrate the baby, we look on to the day when that baby who died on a cross, will return as king. You'll see in a minute how they all weave together. True kingship. And true kingdom? Well, the kingdom, you see, begins at Christmas. It's round the cross. It's there formed in fullness at Pentecost. All the great truths. God with us, that's Christmas. God for us, that's Easter. God in us, that's Pentecost. And in a sense, Christmas is preparing for all these truths And the true kingdom is the kingdom of those who belong to King Jesus. Now, if you uh, read the theologians who like to debate, they have great debates about the kingdom and the church. The church and the kingdom are not exactly the same thing. And I know what they're arguing about. God's at work in the world as well as in the church. And the church's job is not to be a group apart, but to be salt and light in the world. Well, I know all that. Nonetheless, The church is the people of all nations who belong to King Jesus. And so it begins at Christmas. The shepherds and the wise men and, of course, the hatred. You see, if Pilate thought that Jesus posed greater threat than terrorism, Herod certainly did, to the extent that he got rid of all the babies who might have been this King Jesus in his folly and wickedness. And the church is always being fought against. I hope you've read about some of the suffering of Christians in Iraq. Whatever your views on the war, it's not Tony Blair who's persecuting these Christians. Let's be clear. And we need to be reminded of the awesomeness of being Christians in some parts of the world today who are being hounded, killed, exiled because they belong to King Jesus in a world which still doesn't want him. And in our comfort and ease at Christmas, let's pair a thought and a prayer and a determination to follow Jesus that makes us worthy to be brothers and sisters of those who will die for the fact that they dare to say the creed today. True kingdom is a costly business. And one day, and that's why we finish tomorrow, next Sunday night, we finish with a New Testament reading The true kingdom will only be in that great day. The book of Revelation says the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And of course, one of the glorious things about the kingdom is that it spreads across all nations. We don't get quite as many Christmas cards as we used to get. One of the signs of old age, the Christmas cards don't come in the great numbers they used to do. But still, I still count them. I do odd things. I count Christmas cards. 
I once uh, visited somebody who told me that you call this compulsive obsession disorder, which I've I've suffered from for years. Do you you always count steps when you go up? This person told me that this was a sign of of being mad. You count every step when you go up. I've been mad for years. (laughs) And I miss one of the great joys. It doesn't happen anymore. I always counted the hymn numbers. We don't have them anymore. I always add up the hymn numbers. It was one of the strange, strange things. And then I'd try and work out what the date, what date signified. So you know I really am uh, sort of mad. <laughs> but I do, in all my madness, I thank God that I belong to a, a, a kingdom that goes across the world. And so when the Christmas cards come, yes, we get a Christmas card showing a black Jesus, a Chinese Jesus, a South American Jesus, a British Jesus, and they're all right, and they're all wrong. He is their saviour, yet he was a Jew. He was a man. May I come back to my second thought then? He was a king who will reign. He's a man who will rescue. And when you get to the book of Revelation, and you get the fullness of this picture, you understand what verse 2 means. A man who will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, streams of water in the desert, the shadow of a great rock in a weary land... You get that picture in Revelation 5 when there's great weeping. John is in exile in Patmos and he's wondering, is it really worth it? Are we going to win? The emperor reigns. He's been banished because of his loyalty to Jesus. And he has this vision. And the vision of heaven is that they're weeping because there's nobody who can open the scroll. There's nobody who can bring in the hope of mankind. And then suddenly the cry goes up, The Lion of Judah has conquered. Back to Isaiah. The Lion of Judah has conquered. And it's a very vivid bit in Revelation 5. I looked. And the Greek's very, very clear. I saw a crowd of elders. And they were worshipping the throne. And his eyes went round. And I saw a lamb with its throat cut. I was looking for a lion. And I saw a lamb with its throat cut. And the great dominant theme of the book of the Revelation is that there on the throne is a lamb. It's an awesome thought. There's the wrath of the lamb. For if I turn the lamb down, I have no hope. I have no excuse. Because he died for me. But the lion is the lamb. And the power that rules this world is the power not of some tyrannical king, but of a man. Who died? May I just give you a little picture? What does that mean, that shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land? One day, Martin and I, travelling to Nigeria, uh, flew fairly low over the Sahara Desert. And uh, it just seemed, you know, expanse after expanse after expanse of sand. And then suddenly you would see a rock. And in the shelter of the rock, a little oasis of life. And I realize what this verse means. That is, there's somebody, somebody who stops the drift of sand. Somebody who makes a difference. Somebody in whose shadow there is hope. It's not surprising this verse has been the inspiration of hymns about the cross. Beneath the cross of Jesus I fain would make my stand the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. And as I flew over that Sahara desert I thought, of the cross. True salvation. 
true satisfaction. Jesus was the one who stopped the drift of stand. Jesus was the one who made a stand against sin to the extent that he went to the cross to die for our sins. And every now and again in the history of mankind there have been people who have dared to follow Jesus all the way. We rejoice in our reformers who died, who stood there and were willing to give their lives for the truths that you and I take for granted. And I believe we've reached stage in our church life when we're going to have to face the same again. To stand for the truth of the gospel, whatever it costs. Please don't play games with the truth. He was a man who dared to stop the drift of sand. And that's why, of course, he is the man. Uh, some uh, years ago, I was privileged to preach at the prom praise produced by All Souls Langham Place, connected with Paul and you. And uh, it was my job to give a little five-minute talk. And my five-minute talk came after a beautiful singing by a lovely lady who had a beautiful voice, a professional singer who sang, Behold the Man. And she sang it so wonderfully. The preach after that was sheer delight. That is, she sang about the man, the man, who went all the way to the cross. This is why he was called Jesus. He was a king who was a man. He was a lion who was a lamb. And he had to be both God and man in order that he could take our punishment upon him. And every now and again, the church wakens up to the truth that we depend upon the cross alone for our salvation. In a few hours' time, a lot of you here, and Margaret and I in Bradford are going to our sons, will be at midnight communion. And as I said last week, let me say it again. You will enter Christmas Day in a few hours' time, kneeling at the foot of the cross, Celebrate his birthday by remembering his death day. That's why he came. True salvation. But also true satisfaction. You see the phrase that comes there in verse 2? He'll be a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, and he'll be like streams of water in the desert, the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. If I were to ask you, what are the storms? What is the wind? What's the analogy? I guess we would tend to think, well, the storms of life, the problems we go through, bereavement, losing a job, ill health, all these storms. Well, they are storms. But I think I beg to differ. Let me give you an illustration. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what did, how did Jesus end the Sermon on the Mount? He ended the Sermon on the Mount by a little story that's become the inspiration of choruses about the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand. And those who know me will know I've always been pleading for somebody to rewrite that chorus about the house that's built on the rock and the house built on the sand. You know why you've got the chorus wrong? When you sing the chorus, the wise man built his house upon the rock, the, the bit the kids love is the house that fell down. Because when the house falls down, they stamp their feet, they clap their hands, and that's exciting. Uh, which is not exactly the point of the chorus. The point of the chorus is to tell the exciting bit is to build on the sand, build on the rock which stands firm. But when Jesus told that story, why did he tell it? Who are the people whose house stands? Those who hear the word of God and do it? And who are the ones who built on the sand? Those who hear the words and don't do it? And he says, look, the storm came, the wind came, the floods came. 
I think he's talking not about the problems of life and the bereavements and all that, real though they are. And some of you today are coming under great pain. No, no. It's the final storm that we never escape, any of us. There's a lonely day when we stand on the day of judgment, when we face our Redeemer and our King, every knee shall bow. And for many, those are the storms. In my Bible readings at the moment, I'm doing the Bible every day, going through the Bible day by day, and I've got to the end of the book of the Revelation almost, and some of the stuff there. Oh, don't believe the Old Testament's hard and the New Testament's all love. There is more judgment in the New Testament than the Old, and the pictures in the book of Revelation are solemn indeed. Well, I thank God that I shall not have to face that day without hope, because my trust is in the one who died for me. He sees God sees him and not me. True salvation. And secondly, true satisfaction. Well, you see, the streams of water in the desert, that's the reminder of the book of Isaiah. Constantly, he talks about that satisfaction. And we are going into Christmas when we'll enjoy our food, no doubt, most of us. We'll enjoy family life. We'll have a good time. Uh, some of us will. And uh, then it'll all pass. The promise here is of a satisfaction that lasts that's true, that's real in a dry place. And isn't that why Isaiah talks about a man? Not just the man through whose death and resurrection we can have satisfaction. He promises life abundant. He promises that if we come to him thirsty, that out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But that we shall also be the means of blessing to others, out of our lives this will flow. If you are a man or a woman who will dare to stand against the drift, even at Christmas, dare to be different. In an age, at a time when people think so much about what they can get, how much they can spend, how much they can drink, what a good time they can have. There are more evil deeds done around Christmas, I suppose, than any other time of the year. Solemn thought. So we dare to be different. I don't know whether you could say in your life you can find a time when that you came to know Jesus. That there's an exact date you can look back and say, that was the day when I put my trust in him. For most of us we can't. Some of us can. But we do know that in our lives there is a B.C. and an A.D. Just as history is divided by the coming of Jesus, so in our lives there was a time when we were before Christ and now we're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, this is a challenge to become more like him. If we had read on in the, book of the, in the letter of the Philippians, you might even, if you can flick over to Philippians 2, our second reading before I finish, you might even just find that. Just leave Isaiah behind for the moment. And in Philippians 2, page 1179, there's a very interesting thing we would have done if we'd gone on reading, which we hadn't time to do. You see, in verse 8 of Philippians 2 comes the phrase about Jesus. He became obedient to death, 
even death on the cross. He became a man. The king became a man. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now, if you flick over to verse 27, there's an interesting little phrase. After the great model that is Jesus, you suddenly get in the second half of Philippians 2 a challenge that they should follow in his way. And there are two people pinpointed. Timothy, about whom we know a little, and Epaphroditus, about whom we know nothing. And what does it say about Epaphroditus in verse 27? Indeed, he was ill, and literally in the Greek, almost unto death. The phrase is verbally exactly the same. Jesus was obedient unto death. Epaphroditus was almost unto death because he was following Jesus. The mark of being a follower of Christ is the willingness to suffer. And so the Christian model, which is Jesus, becomes a challenge to us to be model Christians. Many years ago when I used to go to wedding receptions, and I tend not to go to wedding receptions these days, when you retire there are certain things you can avoid, and one of them is wedding receptions. Anyway, there we are. As a, when I did have to go to wedding receptions, and incidentally, if you want to invite me to yours, I'll, I might come. Uh, anyway, I did go to wedding receptions. I remember this famous speech of a, of, a, of a father who was making a speech about his new uh, son-in-law. And he made this speech and he said, I'm quite sure John is going to make a perfect uh, son-in-law, a, a model son-in-law. And he said, you know, as I prepared my speech, I looked at my, uh, I picked up a dictionary and I found out the word model. And it said, model, small imitation of the real thing. <laughs> and I thought, well, there you are. Uh, that's what the son-in-law was going to be, a small imitation of the real thing. Now, when it comes to living, we're all, we're all models. We are small imitations of the real thing. I may have told this story before, but I will uh, know that when families meet together at Christmas, all the family stuff comes out, doesn't it? And some of the family stuff gets exaggerated with the years. Here's one of the exaggerated stories about the past, which I'm sure my family will bring out. Uh, there was a time, we were in London having a week's holiday, and we were staying at All Souls Langham Place Rectory. You can't get away from All Souls Langham Place. Michael Bourne, the last rector but two, had let us have his, room, uh, his house for a week. And we were staying, and in the process of the week, we took the kids to Madame Tussauds, which everybody goes to. And uh, we had our little trip to Madame Tussauds. And uh, I uh, got my ticket, and I mounted the steps at Madame Tussauds, and at the top of the steps... I uh, handed my ticket to the chap who was there to collect the ticket. And he didn't move very much. And I thought he was, <laughs> I thought he, I thought he was a little lacking in, in enthusiasm. Uh, and so I, after, after a while, as my children were tittering behind me, I recognized it was very good waxwork. It was um, an imitation of the real thing. I told the story somewhere recently, and one lady came to me and said, Oh, I'm so glad I did that. I thought it was nobody else as foolish as me. So they were, I am not alone in this world. But you see, I was so impressed. I thought it was a real thing. Wouldn't it be lovely if somebody mistook you for Jesus? Wouldn't that be something? That we were so much in imitation that they thought we were him. May God help us, as in a few minutes we sing a song about it, to ask for grace in the midst of a world which needs to see Jesus, to reflect his love, his purity, his kindness, his truth.
so that Christmas will never cease after Christmas. It'll be always Christmas. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus we have a king, the king, 